and welcome to the Dice of Screaming Podcast. Oh! I'm Randy. I am Mike. And today we're coming at you with another podcast. So, hope your week's been good. It's been, well, it's been lively for us over here. <laughs> uh, we've been in lockdown and looking to go either further back into quarantine. So stock up on your toilet paper and... No, no, do not. Do not stock up. <laughs> Purchase perfectly normal amounts well, wait, at I, reasonable intervals. Because apparently that's the new currency of the post-apocalyptic wasteland. Yeah. Here I thought it was going to be bullets and pornography, but apparently it's going to be toilet paper and bottled water. Oh, who are you kidding? I, you know, If it all falls apart, I'd kill for a Mountain Dew. Huh. I am literally going to be zombie land style, like tearing open like old Mountain Dew trucks. What do you mean it's diet? Ah! Well, you know, <laughs> hey, we're all going to have our things we miss, but apparently, you know, you know, not don't use your toilet paper. Just keep it handy to dole out as currency, I guess. My nitro-fueled murder truck <laughs> will be patrolling around the last surviving convenience store <laughs> while I'm on a megaphone going, Just walk away. Just walk away. Leave the Mountain Dew in the cigarettes. <laughs> well, yeah, we make light of it. It's going to be a dark winter for some of us, and probably we hope that everybody just stays safe. No, I hope very none much of you so. catch yes. uh, anything, and uh, you keep using social distancing, washing your paws, and wearing masks, and we'll hopefully all be together again. To play face-to-face. Well, yeah, like I said last week, you know, that's some very respectable news out of Pfizer. And uh, now Moderna uh, has also followed through with another 90-plus percent uh, likely to uh, operate vaccine. So things are shaping up. Things are in the pipeline. I, I see somewhere down the road as we get into late 2021 uh, that we may actually all take a giant collective sigh of relief and join one another at gaming tables again, uh, just like old times. And man, is that going to feel good. Holy cats. It's going to be like puppies, ice cream, and air conditioning at the same time. Well, we're all happy that uh, you listened to our podcast, and we hope it finds you in good spirits, and we hope to contribute to your good spirits, despite our crappy way of talking and (laughs) silly topics. Uh, Well, Well... Look, I mean, how much could you expect from the podcast that even aliens won't probe? Yeah. <laughs> You'll probe it. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot cloth narc. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we can't, we can't make this stuff up, folks. We're just terrible, <laughs> but we're happy that y'all listen to us, and we're also happy that, uh, to have y'all around. So please stick around. We hope you're in good health, and, and uh, keep those spirits up. We will, again, get through this. Well, and in the interest of that, uh, we have a terrific topic today. But that kimono is firmly closed. I give nothing away. Nothing! Ha ha! All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. That kimono is closed. No, we have other things to attend to before. Yes, we have a call-in from Jason. So we'll let Jason take it away. Hey, guys. Jason here. Great tribute to Jolly. Very well deserved. Interesting timing. I just did a recently did an interview on the new version of Hackmaster, the the serious iteration of the Hackmaster game. Um, but yeah, so something's in the zeitgeist. I've got 
you know, Hackmaster and Aces and Eights, and yeah, I've been a fan of Kenzerco's stuff and Trolley stuff for a long time. So really enjoyed the episode. Keep up the great work. Okay. Hey, thanks for that, Jason. I uh, really liked hearing that you agree about Jolly Blackburn getting some do, and you like the old Hackmaster stuff. Yeah, a lot of people look at Hackmaster as a joke game, but I, yeah, I disagree. We are not in that camp. Okay. I mean, a game that incorporates a sense of humor uh, is not necessarily less of a game. Uh, I know that you know there are uh, some folks out there in the, the world who take their gaming like this super serial guys. It's like super serial, you know. No, uh, we're not those guys. <laughs> yeah, if you take it too seriously, I mean, I definitely I mean, play with a serious tone. But if you take Steve it too Jackson, seriously, Jackson tunnels and trolls, you know, that tongue-in-cheek sense of humor all through. Or you mean uh, or, uh, flying buffalo? Yeah, flying buffalo games. Uh, you know, the tongue-in-cheek humor is part and parcel of gaming, and you know, with with Jolly Blackburn, it comes from a totally authentic and legitimate place. So I, I love his style. Uh, I'm so glad to find that there are other devotees uh, of Mr. Blackburn's most excellent work. Well, right on. I mean, that's the, uh, Jolly Blackburn's definitely been in the community. I think he's a little underrated at times uh, as a Me game too. designer. But, uh, you know, I, I also think that uh, some people overlook him because, uh, partly because he's associated with kind of a gag comic strip that, you know, is played up for yucks. So... Yeah, I mean that. There is some his... definite yucks in uh, the Gnome Titan groin stomp. You know, who doesn't think that? You know, <laughs> oh, man, tag team groin stomped by Gnome Titans. What a but, way to yeah, go out! Yeah, doing it to an ogre though. <clears throat> you you just can't you just can't make that stuff up. It happens. <laughs> so all right. Well, anyway, getting back to our topic for today, we did come prepared. We actually did. Uh, we walked around in this one, and so we're going to break it up in kind of three parts. But uh, it does fit together, so bear with us. Uh, next three podcasts will be covering a pretty broad topic. Uh, well, I mean, this one included for a total of three podcasts. Yeah. But uh, we're we're going. Well, yeah. The in, current included. Yes. We're, we're going meta. Yeah, so to set the tone, that we're going to call this uh, layers and labyrinths. Yeah, this is classic tropes, classic mythology, uh, part and parcel of gaming as a whole. Uh, it is one of the essential characteristics of both the early and current game. Uh, there are examples abounding in game, but uh, in this session, we're, we're going to kind of go back to the origin story, as we so often do. We, we start with the emphasis on first causes. Yeah, well... What in uh, Lairs and Labyrinths, what we're really talking about here is why the dungeon? The dungeon as an environment. Now, we've covered dungeoneering and dungeon delving. Oh, yeah. What you do once you get there. That's a different story. And but this we've kind of touched about wild. where they got started and why we go back to them. So, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Well, okay. Well, at main, at the main of, I guess, uh, this topic to start off, I guess you have to really start off with some of the Greeks. And uh, like all things, you know, it starts with a stodgy Greek tale. <laughs> uh, well, and yeah, the, the Greeks had some marvelous uh, salty tales. You know, that there was a tongue-in-cheek humor even in the mythology uh, about the foibles of nature and of life uh, and of man. 
and the gods seem to share the foibles of man. So, uh, marvelous lessons to be learned, but one of the features uh, was not merely uh, the tales of the underworld, uh, of great cavernous places uh, beneath the earth, but an another would, of course, be uh, the labyrinth, uh, the, the maze, getting lost within, uh, the isolation from the outside world, be it by entering an under-earth place or an above-ground place, that takes you apart from humanity, that endangers you, that you know, strips you of all of the advantages that you once had, that makes you lost. You are the outsider, the intrusion, and the <laughs> intrepid adventurer. Uh, for this experience, it's like a crucible to them. This, this is the process they must go through to reach their ultimate goal. Right. And so this just has its place in so many classical myths, and not just the Greeks. But we're, we're going to emphasize that. Well, one yeah, first. we'll start with the Greeks because yeah. it's it's easy to narrow our focus. So. Primarily, I guess the best place to describe the underworld would be Hades. And what better story to start with Orpheus and his long lost love that he pined for, that he decided to take the perilous journey into the underworld itself, into a cave that some believe is actually real, although Aristotle actually poo-pooed that in some of his writings later on. Uh, but we're not going to deal with the validity of it. We're talking about the myth. And the myth is the story, and the story is the meat of the matter. And in delving into these dark caves and dungeons, it's easy once you get deep into a cavern to start to imagine that you're in an otherworldly place. And there you would chiefly meet the horrors contained under the earth, the things that lurked in your nightmares and your imaginations, in the dark corners therein. Also bears. No, <laughs> Just, no. no that's more close to the surface. Cave crickets. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, freaking cave crickets. Oh, no. Actually, uh, I was canyon hiking hmm. and out west, and the canyons had uh, been used as gold mining uh, areas. Yeah, it's how they were more or less... Uh, a lot of the rubble on the way down was from people blasting. Now, uh, there were caves, both of the natural and unnatural variety, left over from the days of people mining them. Uh, and bighorn sheep tended to, you know, like, hide out during the day. So as much as I wanted to go spelunking, because I thought it would have been awesome, uh, I was advised against because they said point blank, look, you clamber your way up to one of those, and uh, you get, like, just five feet into the entrance, and there is a bighorn ram in there. It will bump you right out of that cave and knock you right back down the cliff. And you could very easily die. So do not, under any circumstances, disturb anything that is in a cave. Just let's focus on getting down the canyon. Uh, now, take away all the advantages of modernity. <laughs> uh, roll the clock back 2,000 years, and spelunking is an even riskier thing. So yeah, you're right. The imagination comes alive. Uh, you go far enough in... And you're not of the world that you think of yourself as belonging to anymore. You are someplace other. Right. And so it's a big transcendental environment for a hero to journey into the underworld. And 
I have a hard time pronouncing her last name, so... Eurydice? Eurydice, okay. Eurydice. Or Eurydice. All right. Um, I'll go with whichever one. Let's say for the sake of argument to hear, Eurydice. Eurydice. Okay, so uh, she passes away into the underworld. Orpheus pines for her and feels that he can use his musicianship to get into the underworld and possibly out again. And he even... And that is some Jimi Hendrix-level confidence, let me tell you. Like, I'm going to go rock out till the Lord of Hell gives me my girl back. Which, man, if you want an awesome beginning to a mythic tale, that is just perfect. Right, so he's a bard on a solo quest to go into the most dangerous area known to the Greeks. Yeah, one lone bard, that's all you sent. He's 20th level. All right, so <coughs> yeah, so he goes down there, and he actually uh, gets past all the guardians and manages to make the remorseless god Hades come to grief for a moment. He is able to, with his bardic ability, charm him and make him feel true remorse. And then this is a god of the dead who would also occasionally be uh, called dis Pater and Orcus in other cultures. So, <clears throat> yeah, so like Pater Orcus. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but he makes... I, I slew Orcus with an awesome riff. Yeah, all right. Well, you made him cry. And That's so he, felt, he, so he right relents, there. lets her go. And, of course, uh, he says, well, you know, she can never go look back. And, you know, we all know how <sighs> this tragedy. Yeah, but, but anyway, he travels to Tartarus, which is the... Greek underworld's not exactly hell because no. that's a different place, but it is pretty close to being hell. Certainly, and, uh, certainly, the myths of Tartarus had their influence on what became the later Christian perception of what hell was. Right, but you know, it's definitely a dark and dreary place, full of terror and torment for those souls and the, trapped within, versus the other places where you would go. And so... Yeah, no Elysian fields for you if you're down in Tartarus. So he manages to get her out, and of course... But it's the environment that he goes in, the travails, that makes everyone listen. It's definitely a, a tale that was told at night. There were several uh, famous plays based on it that were reenacted even in the time of the Roman emperors, where it was much beloved by the popular folk, uh, popularized by more... Uh, sophomoric attempts where the humor was interjected, where the higher elevated of society and strata you got, the more serious and more laborious the uh, presentation was, especially with <laughs> Still lighting. Still true to this day, because, you know, uh, look, you know, some people like their opera. Uh, other people like fart jokes. Yeah. So, it, you know, the world has not really changed all that much in the last couple of thousand but years. But he bases Cerebus and the Souls of the Damned I mean, among other things, uh, the, the hungry dead. Yes. <laughs> who were once loosed upon the earth. Flesh-eating dead. Yeah, had to get through them. And all with his music. So, yeah, great bard tale, Orpheus. But, again, the transcendental environment loomed large throughout history and legend. It, he's one of a handful of heroes. Just a handful who went into the underworld. And that's where we're uh, dwelling on here. Now, another famous one, of course, is the Thetian Minotaur. Oh, oh, uh, well, rather than... Uh, the Labyrinth. Rather than the Underworld, per se, uh, in this, in the the Epic of Theseus, uh, you yep. have the Minotaur contained within a labyrinth. You know, a, a cursed and twisted creature, half bull, half man, uh, violent, uh, and 
to whom is, you know, sacrificed, uh, you know, both uh, virtuous sons and, you know, fair maidens uh, in a suitable quantity. And, you know, this, this is a pretty high cost uh, in grief for an empire to pay. So, you know, Theseus gets the unenviable task of going into the maze and killing the Minotaur. You know, ends this cycle of tribute once and for all. Now... <laughs> He's aided by the gods. Yeah, he is not without assistance in this. Uh, but the labyrinth, you know, to be described, it must be remembered that it is extremely different from the journey into the underworld in that uh, a labyrinth is a place crafted, for the most part, by the hands of man. Okay. Right. It, was it is not. It is less a mystical place of it is destination. A, it is a tool uh, intended to confuse and to induce despair, uh, and it's a self-perpetuating quest that, you know, like, a, you're lost and wandering and alone. Uh, so, unlike the despair of entering the underworld, uh, the labyrinth's despair comes from the frustration of. Like, despite the fact that this is a purely mortal contrivance, I still cannot defeat it. It is greater than I am. Uh, that, it, every bit as terrifying as, you know, like the world of the dead. Uh, and how much more so? Because, you know, the world of the dead, I mean, there's only usually one way to get there. But yes, inside the labyrinth were changing walls, traps, and tricks that would confuse Befuddle and perhaps even maim you. And... And then, of At course, the center, there's the Minotaur hunting you. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, we have one of the iconic monsters of D&D fame, the Minotaur. Now, I, I note that D&D uh, &D made the Minotaur somewhat less of a massive, like, epic-level foe. It, it really normalized it down to a, a more routine, uh, mid-level opponent, which I don't disapprove. Well, you can't have a, you know, of course the Minotaur in this one was the sire of Yeah, and it was the, the only one. It's not like there were like 500 the king Minotaurs. and uh, Zeus. Yeah. This, uh, in the myth, of course, this is an epically created one lone single monster. But it has been the inspiration for much right. gaming and, you lore. know, they, they, um, you could look at the Minotaur classically in the D&D as kind of uh, inspired by, but not really. Correct. Uh, very much watered down in the gaming versions but, important note, it was a huge inspiration on gaming. Uh, the labyrinth and environments like unto that, the difficultly mapped area, uh, are, again, you see the antecedents in the very earliest examples of D&D. &D. Um, <laughs> the idea of going down into a place that has been designed intentionally to be hostile to or to frustrate uh, the players and then to place various dangers within which you know, most are survivable if you are cautious. But some, uh, unless you are wary enough to avoid them, are not escapable. You know, like, certain death may await you if you do not observe these warnings. I, these are elements of classical mythology that ultimately uh, 
being reasonably well known by the people who were designing D and D at the time. You know, they the well, highly yeah, they were the classic. Yeah, the highly literate crowd knew all of the classic myths, and man, did they find a welcome home in inspiring early Dungeons and Dragons. And with that, a little less legendary, but nonetheless looming archetype, is the Egyptian pyramids. Oh, yes. All right. Good inclusion. Uh, both the Egyptian and Aztec pyramids uh, as structures, uh, <laughs> particularly the Egyptians, once the age of the pyramid had come into play, there had been so many ep- you know, issues with early tomb robbers uh, and you know, like thefts of goods from, from people's resting places that the habit became ingrained of uh, creating, you know, false tombs and, you know, double backs and dead ends and pitfalls. And, you know, like just, uh, it could, you were risking your life to crack into a pyramid incautiously. Uh, And then even if you were relatively successful, you might never find the hidden room in which lay the real treasures and that didn't stop a cast of tomb robbers from being present in Egypt for a number of centuries, especially after the fall of the true empire of the Nile. Yes. But nonetheless, um, the other tomb robbers would come as antiquarians and archaeologists. <clears throat> yeah, and, you know, although we try to put the best possible spin on it uh, with, like, the Indiana Jones-inspired types, this belongs in a museum, you know. Well, true uh, enough, but they so, were... But a great many people were not like that at all. Yeah, okay. we do know a lot about Egyptian culture from those people who made those early discoveries. But still, they were plundered and taken back to a museum in another land, not of yeah. their origin. And have now been returned. But anyway, we get past that little inclusion. We just want to say that the Egyptian tombs inspired a lot of people's imagination during that pulp era. Because they were so elaborate and so craftily made as to fool and also war, and also uh, supernatural. Uh, let's face it, a lot of the thieves are superstitious. Oh, and absolutely. Or, you know, when you're in a dark place in the middle of the night or wherever, cut off from light, and you see these ominous sigils and pronunciations upon all who pass through here. Not that uh, a lot of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, I mean, we lost the, the ability to read them for a while. And so after we recovered these, the ability to read hieroglyphics again. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rosetta Stone. Okay, because some uh, of the uh, intonations became even more dire. But uh, considering that most of the hieroglyphics were reserved for the nobles, and even some of the priests who wrote them didn't understand them completely. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, depending on the rank of the priest, you know, the the, the initiated into mysteries. No. I, Quite the thing, you know, laying protections upon a tomb uh, to protect it both in the afterlife and, of course, in the real world. Uh, a marvelous acknowledgement that a tomb was not merely a uh, repository, that it was a kind of bridge uh, between one place and another, uh, existing in both states. Very, you know, complicated and wonderful way to view the universe. And it was, well, the fact that there was in the pulp era that a lot of tombs and stories about 
mummies and the risen dead or that would rise up to protect their precious artifacts loomed large in the imaginations of many young readers of fanciful tales and weird tales specifically uh, that we got the kind of modern trap-filled tomb out of it as well as the Peruvian and Aztec ruins that kind of had traps but you know things didn't work out as well preserving them uh, yeah perhaps uh which we don't know. really know what they were meant to do in many cases because they fell into disuse and were overgrown. And that environment is not conducive to things of non-stone or uh, non-ferrous metals. Yeah. The, or ferrous metals to lasting long, so. Yeah, uh, steamy jungles uh, do uh, treat things a little bit differently than arid deserts, uh, which it wasn't always an arid desert in those regions, but, you know, in due time, the pyramids came to be surrounded by a much drier climate. So, uh, alas, uh, you know, much of what might have been recoverable in Latin America is, well, gone. But, and, yeah, the, but the era of the tomb looming large as a trap-filled environment was particularly novel in its approach and idea, and it loomed large, and it definitely hit a tone with a lot of people in the early eras of the 30s, where a lot of these stories started to gain popularity. Nonetheless, uh, we can also go right back to the ancient times and go to the Celtic and Viking and Saxon tombs, which were said to be haunted by the spirits of the Whites or the Barrow Whites. Yes, the Barrow Whites, which, you know, very simple, comparatively easy uh, mini-tomb. You know, without the vast nature and size uh, of the... Egyptian and, you know, uh, other uh, pyramid-building cultures, uh, the Barrow Mound uh, was just, you know, if you put enough earth in one spot, we build our own hill. Yeah. Then <laughs> uh, we basically, you know, have covered over a, you know, tiny house of the dead uh, until at last uh, it is obscured from you and well you know same problems uh, no matter how far apart the cultures were uh, the knowledge that there are valuable things down in there uh, becomes problematic because inevitably uh, somebody looks to garner advantage in in the you know current world uh, with the things of those who have passed so uh, some people had a profound respect for the graves, and other people clearly did not. So then you begin the myth-making that uh, spins around this, that, uh, you know, the spirits of the dead, uh, you know, pace restlessly in here and will tear the living apart, you know, drain the life from you. Uh, man. Or come back to life and hack you up with their weapons that they yeah, were buried with. And that... Uh, you know, that, that ancient warrior king will rise up and have his vengeance for whomsoever disturbs his, his eternal rest. Man, uh, this is the meat and potatoes of the mythologies that crept into D&D. Right, and the Celts also believed the uh, mounds, the fairy mounds. And not little happy fairies that you know. Oh yeah, we're not we're not talking you know, like little pixies. Oh, we're so cute. Oh, sleepy dust. Oh. no, no, not that at all. <laughs> nope. Uh, these are the the spirits of the she. These are the fickle uh, beings that 
are apart from humanity and don't really consider you to be an especially important thing. And in fact, they didn't even take your existence or well-being into account when making their plans. Even the good ones. Yeah. And that was the nice ones. <laughs> the bad ones were genuinely malevolent. The nice ones just didn't care. <laughs> they, they didn't think. It was an afterthought. They, yeah. They were trying to help you out. And so... You get places that you, you go in and, you know, yeah, you may emerge just fine, but, you know, what do you mean? It's like nine years later. <laughs> and when you reemerge from these places, you're changed. Um, your perceptions of the world are off. And so you were pay touched or very touched as it was. And sometimes this could be a good thing and sometimes it would be a bad thing. But uh, most of the time it was a transcendental experience, much like we experienced before. You were forever changed by your experience into these areas. Now, uh, moving in to the more current era, these to many of our listeners would obviously be apparent to classical. And the only reason why we want to touch on them is not to make ourselves sound like we're like smarter than thou. It's, to cover some of the points that we want to make in some of the later installments of this, but specifically laying the groundwork that even ruins above ground held a great prominence in many people's imagination. For instance, because uh, the Greek and Roman ruins loomed large next to many cultures that would move in and didn't know the uh, uh, context to which they entered in, they would also have an aura of mystery and almost like a cursed effect since these structures were still standing in some form, but yet they had fallen into disrepair and neglect. What caused people to leave this area and no longer be there? And there are more than just Roman ruins. There's many others. There's yeah, when we talk about the arrival of the Dark Ages, uh, they were not Dark Ages for every place on Earth, uh, but for a very specific portion of uh, Europe. It was a period where the connection between how, you know, where we came from and how did we get here uh, had been in many ways severed, uh, at least practically, for the overwhelming majority of people in a largely pre-literate culture. So here they were existing side by side with structures and monuments and buildings that had fulfilled a purpose only a scant few hundred years before, and now possessed no explanation, no context. Who built them? Uh, what I'm happened told to them? The ancient peoples of this region uh, built this marvelous thing, but we do not know why. Well, even like the rumors of the Sea Peoples and the Etruscans, uh, there were things that could be of value that were left lying around, and this added an aura of menace to the area. Like, who would leave a valuable item laying around? Why would we, you know, yeah, well, the there must be world. something sinister. So many legends and, and, well, spooky tales were obviously conjured up around these ruins, which lend them an aura of mystery. And, of course, anything that kind of spooks us also intrigues us. Oh, yeah. Temple complexes, necropolises, uh, you know, things that had religious and spiritual significance uh, and that were just left behind with reasonably, you could expect that some people would recognize uh, inherited symbols popular symbolism, uh, but they might not inherit language. And so there were only the vaguest hints, these tantalizing, you know, like, well, I'm pretty sure this is a warning to stay away. Uh, or, you know, this is a uh, invocation for a blessing from the gods, but I'm not too sure about the rest of this. And that's the state that things had devolved into. Uh, 
Now, you can pretty clearly see the connection between modern gaming and that scenario as a, a fact of life. Yeah, there were relics of value and worth uh, left found in some of these ruins, and inexplicably, why would they be left? Because obviously the owners kept them, and I'm pretty sure there are bones and remnants of other people, especially if you look at uh, the area around Pompeii that wasn't covered yeah. in ash. That would be pretty spooky to anybody who didn't know what happened before. But even the Romans talk about coming across ruins of cultures they didn't understand or have any context <laughs> of. And they were kind of, even the, uh, at that time, considered hyper-literate Romans uh, had to speculate. And their speculations often turned to dark thoughts yeah. of plague or even <clears throat> monsters plaguing yeah. the land. They Wrath of the gods, yep. you know, things of that ilk. But, I mean, here was a hyper-literate culture where the entrenched bureaucracy involved meant that while the average person might not be especially literate, uh, they were never far away from mm -hmm. someone who was. And that is a big core difference, is that the reach of civilization had mostly to do with not personal individual literacy, but access to repositories of knowledge. That like you could find somebody who could get an explanation. Uh, and having that go away meant something. Now, to think of the Romans uh, 2,000 plus years ago, uh, looking upon the ruins of cultures before them and thinking to themselves, wow, we have no idea who made this. You know, that, <laughs> to be as puzzled as we are today by the things we have seen then, that is, it's a little daunting. Yeah, and, you know, so it's understandable that they would, in the speculations of a lot of these scholars, they would often turn to dark things. And there we are, and we arrive at they modern hubris, era. hubris, and the gods smote them. And there, problem solved. You know, it, which, you know, trust the salty old dude to come up with that explanation for everything. <laughs> I'm sure that this was a population that questioned their elders. Oh, God, will you shut up, fart beard? You know. But here we have in the modern okay, era. Boomer. Here we have in the modern era the <laughs> collision of myth, legend, and the need to populate areas with monsters and areas of mystery and peril. Because, well, you don't get experience by just walking around kicking rocks. You have to go find adventure. And sometimes the best place for adventure is sometimes yeah, it finds you. But sometimes you go find it, and it's a hole in the dungeon, as the Blackmore campaign showed. Hole in the hole in the hill with chaotic tendencies is coming at you. <laughs> and so you delve into there, and here they are, these mysteries of monsters, traps, labyrinthian mazes, all these things that Plots associate. Plots schemes, you know, uh, uh, relations between various tribes, uh, none of whom are on humanity's side, per se. Right, and then you put into the mix... Uh, Items of treasure to be garnered, deadly traps, and of course hideous monsters, and also supernatural peril. The dungeon is a perfect environment for it, and it's the reason why the game is called Dungeons and Dragons, besides the naming uh, conventions of the Gygax family. The point was is that dungeons held a certain mystique, and this mystique is based not only on the culture, of gaming, but also that culture is now kind of faded. It's just accepted that there's a dungeon that you explore or area of ruin that you come into that will be the test for your characters this time. This night, it could be a multi-campaign or it could be an entire campaign, like a mega dungeon. 
And we're going to cover some of those mega dungeons up in upcoming episodes, including uh, Greyhawk Ruins and uh, the Ruins of Undermountain, as well as uh, Parlint for Earthdawn and uh, Big Rubble and Pavis for RuneQuest. These are big areas, uh, episodic areas, that you can base entire campaigns off of just delving into ruins and deep multi-level dungeons filled with all sorts of crazy monsters and hideous traps. And they are the ideal examples of what we're talking about when we speak of labyrinths and lairs. Uh, These are examples of that exact circumstance where the inherited mythology of thousands of years uh, has worked its way down to today. So when people ask, why does it have to be a dungeon? It doesn't have to be a dungeon, but why the fondness for them? Because it is human tradition and not just some appalling tradition that like has no sense in the real world, uh, but a terrific tradition uh, and a wonderful inheritance of the imagination that follows us down from our most ancient ancestors. And so, yeah, it's not an obligation, it's a celebration. Right, and that's the point we want to make, and so kind of we're laying the groundwork for this. Yeah, but uh, we wanted to make mention of it because the the roots of this again, not to uh, make ourselves like, oh, we know all this stuff. It's because well, it's fascinating. And no, we love it. I've always been intrigued by the ancient stories, and when you have a game that kind of includes all those things, and as Mike said, it's it's a celebration. I love mythology so much. That if it died and went to hell, I would grab my loot and then I would song battle the Lord of the Underworld to allow me to bring it back to life. Wait. Uh, oh, okay. yeah. You uh, kind of caught yourself uh, there. Yeah, a little made an error. Yeah. Okay. So while we'll gush at this subject, <laughs> uh, it is important to us. And so as we go into the next one, uh, which you'll have to wait till next week. Uh, <laughs> As we get into the next episode, uh, we'll, this will build the groundwork what we take here as we laid out the foundations of what we wanted to talk about and, of course, gush a little bit about it because, well, gosh, if you can't gush, what, what good is having any excitement? I'm saying, right? We're nerds, right? I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, why be nerds if you're not allowed to be overly excited over something that, like, some people do not find that exciting? Eh, eh, this is our forte. Yeah, and, you know, uh, some people have... Uh, podcasts where they gush about sports events i mean we may be and the we wheel. like sports i mean i <laughs> yeah. i like it's a ball on a field it's field ball yeah okay i like football a lot and you know uh, i could talk uh, quite a bit about my love for the game but at the same time i also have to take a step back and not everybody enjoys the same thing so that's why i salt it with a little bit of hey you know uh, if i gush here just uh, give me a little a little accord and just say hey you know that's your thing but we hope you enjoyed yeah, our I, little gush session, and yeah. uh, as we wind it down, uh, we just want to make sure that uh, we thank all of you listeners. Thank you all of our supporters. We really appreciate that support, and we hope to be in soon to be offering some more uh, perks to some of our supporters here. But yeah, we really, you know, that's really touching. Uh, we have been engineering some some vile plans that uh, I, I think are, are going to. Uh, not change the essential nature of the podcast, uh, but will certainly enliven things for our supporters. So All right, so we want to keep. Things we'll be proud of. 
So we hope you enjoy what we have in store. And, of course, if you uh, have any comments or thoughts on what we're doing or what you like or what even you don't like, you can let us know on our Facebook page or get a hold of us on Twitter. Yes, yes. Myself available at MagiVox. Yeah, myself at Deathhand Gaming. That's D-E-T-H-A-N-D Gaming. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the other ways of getting a hold of us, I, I suppose we probably should get around to having an email or something like that. Oh. Uh, yeah, so a lot of things that will be our next project to do. Oh, an official. Yeah. Like an official letterhead email. But, yep. Yes, you have reached. The dice are screaming. Yeah, so you can get a hold of us there. But uh, until that time, of course, uh, you'll have to deal with us on our normal haunts. So, until next time. May the, May the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.